Today, Donald Trump called the judge overseeing his fraud case a Trump hater. I'm not sure that was a smart move. The lead starts right now. With millions of dollars on the line and his future businesses in New York at stake, Donald Trump shows up for day one of his civil fraud trial, blasting not only prosecutors, but insulting the very judge who will decide how much Trump must pay in a case where he's already been found liable for fraud. And as Trump pleads his case, here come some shocking comments and a new warning from one of his former longest serving White House officials. This official going on the record, setting the record straight, only on the lead, exclusively confirming a number of very damning details about Donald Trump himself. Plus, are the days numbered for Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House? Republican Congressman Matt Gates making some serious threats today, but will we see him follow through and will he have the votes? Welcome to The Lean. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our law and justice lead and Donald Trump turning a potentially devastating trial in New York into a campaign stop. The former president inside the courtroom right now, attending the first day of a civil fraud trial against him and the Trump organization. But Mr. Trump was not required to show up today. So why did he make an appearance? Mr. Trump, why do you want to be here? Because I want to watch this witch hunt myself. This is a pure witch hunt for purposes of interfering with the elections of the United States of America. It's totally illegal. It is not totally illegal. It is perfectly legal. It is also pretty easy to see why Donald Trump is so unhappy about this trial. In addition to the embarrassment, it hits at the core of the very identity that he has built up over decades. This image of a super wealthy, incredibly successful businessman. Before the trial even started, the judge found Trump and his co-defendants liable for fraud. He already ruled they grossly inflated the values of their assets and properties for years. And that decision could spell the end of Trump's business career in New York. That decision could cost him $250 million. If the New York Attorney General Letitia James, who was also sitting in court today, just just a few feet away from Donald Trump, gets her way. My message is simple. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how much money you think you may have, no one is above the law. And it is my responsibility and my duty and my job to enforce it. Now, if this notion of Donald Trump inflating his wealth, if it all sounds familiar, it's because this is not the first time Mr. Trump has been caught lying about his wealth. You might remember in 2018, a former reporter for the magazine Forbes came forward saying that Trump phoned him way back in 1984, claiming to be his own spokesman, a guy named John Barron, And John Barron called this reporter to lie about Donald Trump's net worth so that Donald Trump could secure a better place on Forbes magazine's list of Forbes' richest people. Here's just a snippet of the call. Here's John Barron. 
most of the assets have been consolidated to Mr. Trump, you know, because you have down Fred Trump. But, but I think you can really use Donald Trump now, and, and you can uh, just consolidate it. Now, the reason I even bring this old, old interview up is because it was raised in court today. One prosecutor said in his opening statement, while it may be one thing to exaggerate for Forbes magazine, you cannot do it while conducting business in the state of New York. Now, all of this, as a high-ranking Trump official, goes on the record to me with his harshest criticism of Trump to date and a warning about The threat Trump seems to pose if elected in 2024, and that exclusive reporting is coming ahead on the lead. But we're going to start in New York with CNN's Bryn Gingras, who's outside the courthouse in New York City. Bryn, what is happening inside the courtroom right now? Yeah, Jake, well, the state's first witness is still on the stand, Donald Bender. He was Trump's and Trump Org's former accountant. He's basically getting questioned by the state about particular financial statements which come into question for this entire uh, trial. But let's begin with the opening statements, which were earlier today. On the state side, they basically presented a case to the judge that Trump and his sons and Trump Org conspired together to commit years of fraud, inflating their assets in order to get better interest rates, better business loans and essentially said they knew that they were doing. They said they're going to call a bunch of witnesses to the stand. One of them you're very familiar with, Jake, it's Michael Cohen. They said that he will be called to the stand to show uh, basically why the belief that they inflated these assets. If you remember, this whole case was brought based on Michael Cohen's testimony to Congress where he said uh, just that. Now, on the defense's side, their uh, defense attorneys essentially said what you already mentioned, that Trump has made his billions off of a real estate business empire doing good business and doing it by the book, saying in sum, there was no illegality, there was no fraud, there are no victims. They even said that there were banks eager to do business with the Trumps. Also eager is Trump himself. We know that he wants to testify in this trial. We don't know when that's going to happen, but we do expect it. And I can tell you, Jake, the optics of this, as you've already shown your viewers, he's gone in and out of that courtroom to make statements uh, to the press about what is happening behind those closed doors. He, however, has not really acknowledged the New York attorney general who made those statements at the courthouse steps right behind me, only acknowledging a little bit today, uh, but passing by her multiple times uh, in this courtroom, only his son, Eric Trump, who is sitting behind him in that courtroom, has actually gone over and shook her hand. But again, this is just the start of a very long civil trial. We're expecting it to last about three months, Jake. All right, Bryn Gingras outside the courthouse in New York. Thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN chief legal analyst and anchor Laura Coates and former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Uh, Laura, let's start with the key legal argument for Trump's legal team uh, that Bryn just discussed, that the banks got repaid with interest. So really, in their characterization, uh, this is a victimless crime. There are no victims. Everybody got paid back, even if, they, even if and I don't know that they're mm-hmm. granting the idea that their assets were overinflated, but even if they were, everyone got paid back with interest, so where's the victim? Well, you know, first of all, the notion that all's well that ends well does not really bode well in a courtroom of law when you have a number of things on the books that are so-called victimless. Imagine, if you will, somebody who is soliciting to take drugs. They want the drug. Somebody sold it to them. Who's the victim here? You might have a John and a prostitute. Where's the quote-unquote victim here? Our society is really built on a number of laws being on the books because society is offended. And even though somebody has not been a so-called victim in the traditional sense, it is still nonetheless against the law. And that's the core 
core of the prosecution's argument here. It doesn't matter if there wasn't an ultimate, maybe even an insurance issue or a tax benefit, although they claim that there was. Beckett, you have engaged in fraudulent behavior, misstating, misrepresenting that which is actually objective, right? You know what the square footage is and what the assigned cost per footage would be in square foot, and you've inflated it for a number of reasons. This trial today is less so about whether a fraud was committed, though, Jake, and more about what you sought to gain from that. And that's where the notion of a victimless crime or not victimless is going to come into play. So, uh, Ellie, uh, what's your response to that? Because let me just give you my point of view. Uh, I don't want to impugn everybody in real estate. I'm sure that there are a lot of people in real estate who are fine, upstanding, ethical men and women. But to me, it looks like a lot of folks in real estate are kind of shady and kind of play with numbers and and worth of assets all the time. I mean, look, obviously Donald Trump lies a lot and obviously he inflates the worth of his properties and such. But the argument that, I mean, look, this, this is a judge trial, not a jury trial. But if this were a jury trial, I mean, the argument that like, look, no one got hurt and the banks and the insurance companies got everything they wanted back and, and, and then some, I mean, might that not be convincing for a jury? Well, I think there could be something to that, Jake. Let me give you the technical side of that first. The one count on which the judge has already found for the attorney general against Donald Trump, it doesn't matter if there is a provable victim of provable loss. That does matter with respect to the other six counts, which are still at play in this trial. But Jake, I think bigger picture, people may look at this case and say, well, we're talking about tens and hundreds of millions of dollars of overinflation. Why is this only charged as a civil case and not a criminal case? Now, I have to sort of put myself inside the mindset of the attorney general and the DA, which was part of this case earlier. But I think the fact that there was no provable victim. There was not someone who was, say, swindled out of money, who was robbed, who was never repaid. These were banks, made loans, got repaid with interest. Still technically a civil violation, could also technically be a criminal violation, but it makes it a less appealing case to bring in the criminal context. So that may well be why this is a civil case and not a criminal one. Well, if I may, yes, on behalf do. of the formerly been Laura Coates, on behalf of the people of the United States, how sure. about the people who, and Ellie, of course, has been as well. How about the people who don't get the same benefits based on inflated assets, the people who have tax that is owed, people who have to actually give the accurate assessment of the value of their property if they're lucky enough to own it, according to the so-called American dream, if they're able to secure a loan in an industry which oftentimes lays bare bias, whether it's implicit or otherwise, or, you know, a lot uh, algorithm-based or otherwise. What about those people who say, well, you know what, all's well did not end well for me because I didn't have the benefit that perhaps Trump did. I suspect on a jury of people who have either tried to get a loan, who have had to pay their taxes, who have had to do that which is required, will look at it very differently. But again, now it's just a judge doing that who I'm sure I should pay his taxes as well. Sure. No, it's a, it's a good argument. Uh, Ellie, this, ju- this case is going to be decided by a judge, not a jury. Trump did not seek a jury trial why not? Why would they want a judge to decide this? Uh, he's just going to go by the letter of the law, not any of the emotional appeals or the cynical appeals I'm making here. Wasn't that a mistake? Yeah, Jake, let's give Trump's uh, legal team the benefit of the doubt and assume this was an intentional decision not to seek a jury trial. There's two reasons you do that. One is if you think the judge is sympathetic to you, that can't possibly be the case. This judge has been ruling against Trump for months now. The other is if you think you have a very technical defense that you may not want to put in front of a jury, but you may think would resonate better with the judge. We'll see or we'll see if this is just part of the overall political and dramatic packaging of this. It's also possible that 
one of his lawyers screwed up and forgot to check the box. We don't know. We don't know. (laughs) It's happened before. Laura Coates, Ellie Honig, thank you so much. You can catch Laura on CNN tonight at 11 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. As this case in New York plays out, prosecutors down in Georgia are trying to line up witnesses for trial set to start in just three weeks. This is a criminal case, and a key figure has been subpoenaed there. Co-conspirator number five, also known as former New York Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick. But Carrick? Carrick wants immunity first. I'm going to talk to his attorney next. Plus, California's historic appointment today to the U.S. Senate and the contention this major move creates back home. Stay with us. And we're back uh, with, our, with more in our law and justice lead in a separate criminal case involving Donald Trump. Today, the Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney issued a subpoena to former New York Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick. Carrick's lawyer confirms that he is, in fact, co-conspirator number five in the indictment in the Georgia election subversion case. Prosecutors want Carrick's testimony later this month because they think he could potentially shed light on major events in this investigation, given that Carrick was in several meetings with lawmakers in Pennsylvania and Arizona, two of the other states that Trump contested after the 2020 election. With me now, Carrick's lawyer, who also had previously resigned from Trump's legal team, Tim Parlatori. Um, thanks for joining us, Tim. Bernie Carrick was at a key meeting at the White House on November 25th, 2020, along with a group of Pennsylvania legislators and President Trump, along with then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis. Now, Cassidy Hutchinson, the former aide to Meadows, says this meeting touched on holding a special session of the Pennsylvania state legislature to appoint these fake electors, these Trump electors. Why was Bernie Carrick at that meeting and were crimes discussed? So Bernie Carrick was working with Rudy Giuliani as an investigator, so he attended a lot of meetings alongside Rudy Giuliani. Uh, And from my understanding and everything that uh, I've discussed with Mr. Carrick um, and all the evidence I've seen, there was no criminality discussed whatsoever at that meeting. It was about, you know, different legislative actions that could be taken, and everything was about doing things legally. Now, you say that Bernie Carrick should be granted in immunity in exchange for testifying. Why? What, what kind of testimony does he have to offer? Sure. So, you know, I don't know exactly what they want him to testify about, but the Fulton County District Attorney's Office reached out to me, and they were demanding that he come down and testify. And I, I said to them, look, you have publicly identified him as being a co-conspirator, and you know the Supreme Court case law, and this is very clear, when you publicly accuse somebody of a crime and then you want to compel them to come in and testify, they have a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, even if they haven't done anything wrong. And so no competent criminal lawyer would allow him to come in and answer questions. You know, he's going to plead the Fifth. You know, are you planning on giving him immunity? And, and this is one thing that I think has been a little bit lost today. We didn't ask for immunity. Mr. Carrick isn't seeking immunity. If they want him to testify, then the hurdle that they have to overcome so that he won't plead the fifth is they have to give him immunity. Right, but you said that they they publicly identified him, but he was an unindicted, unnamed co-conspirator, wasn't he? Well, it's it's been pretty clear who a lot of these um, co-conspirators are. And so when they describe somebody like that, you know, co-conspirator number five is clearly Mr. Carrick. You know, your network has been on top of that as far as identifying all these people. So 
Simply the fact that they didn't say his name in the document doesn't change the fact that they have identified him you know, by his actions as being a member of this conspiracy. And that is something that then implicates the Fifth Amendment. So you say prosecutors have told you, quote, if we wanted to indict Mr. Carrick, we would have already done so. And um, your client's yeah. one of 30 unindicted co-conspirators in your case. Um, so it doesn't seem like Correct. Fannie Willis might suddenly decide to go after your client. It seems like they, I mean, based on what they told you, that they don't want to indict him. Uh, they want him to testify. Uh, does he have, did he witness any criminality? Does he have testimony that, that, is, that is worth his testimony? Well, does, from my understanding, he does not have anything that would indicate criminality by the president, by Rudy Giuliani, or any member of the Giuliani team. Would he potentially be helpful in a case against Sidney Powell? I think he would. And I think that that's kind of a, uh, a wrinkle to this case uh, that's difficult on a whole bunch of different levels. So I could see why they would want him to testify relevant to Sidney Powell. But if you're not willing to give him the basic protections that any normal prosecutor in any other prosecuting office in the country would do, then you're just not going to be able to force him to testify. Is Sidney Powell the only one that, that he might have evidence against or, or testimony against? Are there other individuals that, that he might have witnessed something that is worth discussing? In this group, it is primarily Sidney Powell because you know, he, the testimony that he has is that Rudy Giuliani and his whole team, they were pursuing leads. Uh, they were hampered by a lack of time, a lack of resources, and so that prevented them from being able to chase everything down completely. Uh, it certainly did lead to certain inaccuracies. But when they talk about people putting out knowingly false claims, Carrick and others are going to be able to point right over at Sidney Powell and say, hey, what they're accusing us of? She did. And then he's going to be able to testify about that's why she was fired. That's why, you know, President Trump told her she wasn't allowed back in the White House. It's actually, in a weird way, very um, exculpatory to President Trump and to Rudy Giuliani to say, yeah, there was somebody doing something wrong, Sidney Powell. And that's why we got rid of her. That's why we distanced ourselves from her. So I do think it is problematic for her. But in inculpating her, it also exculpates Rudy Giuliani and President Trump. Why were her crazy comments any different from anybody else's? Because she was pushing things that had already been found not to be true. Okay. I mean, I think a, a lot of people were pushing things that were already found not to be true. But uh, to be continued, we'll have you back and talk more about this. Tim Parlatori, always good to have you on. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Next, we're heading to Capitol Hill. Busy news day today. Mr. Mr. Republican Mr. Congressman Matt Gates says he is not backing away from his threat to oust House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But who has the votes? That's the real question. Stay with us. No one's in town yet. It's Monday on a flying day at noon. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. 
Temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And we're back with our politics lead. If this weekend's last-minute deal to save the U.S. federal government from a disastrous shutdown was not dramatic enough, there is more. Hardline Republicans are furious with their speaker, Kevin McCarthy, for working with Democrats to get that short-term spending bill across the finish line. And just yesterday, Florida Republican Congressman Matt Gates told me that he is ready to try to kick McCarthy out of the Speaker's office. He said he's going to offer a motion to vacate this week. It's a threat he repeated on the House floor earlier today. Starting that process only takes one vote. Finishing it would require 218, a simple majority. As CNN's Manu Raji reports, Democrats could be McCarthy's only hope to keep his job. Kevin McCarthy's speakership in peril as he tries to stave off a right-wing revolt led by Congressman Matt Gates, who is trying to do something never successfully executed, ousting a sitting speaker through a vote in the House and promising to do it over and over again until McCarthy is no longer speaker. We've got to understand why we are here. The main reason? McCarthy relied on Democrats to help keep the government open until next month. Are you worried about throwing this institution into chaos, paralyzing an institution that your party runs? You talk about chaos as if it's me forcing a few votes and filing a few motions. You don't know chaos until you've seen where this Congress and this uniparty is bringing us. For Gates to succeed, he would need the support of at least five House Republicans if all Democrats voted to eject McCarthy. Then the House would be paralyzed until a new speaker could be elected. I think that members should be looking at for stronger leadership. House Democratic leaders have not yet decided how to vote and what concessions to seek from McCarthy. I am not happy with Kevin McCarthy as speaker, but as a friend of mine says, it can always be worse. Others not eager to give McCarthy a lifeline. Would you vote to vacate? Would speaker? I cast that vote? Absolutely. Once Gates files the motion, the House would vote within two days. Today, the Speaker would not say whether he would have to cut a deal with Democrats to keep his job, even as the Speaker accused Gates of retaliating over an ethics investigation he faces, something the Florida Republican denies. You, you always count me out, right? I'm just asking you the possibility. Yeah, and I'm just telling you the same thing I tell you every time. I never give up. The last time a similar vote happened was in 1910, but Joseph Cannon remained as Speaker as his powers were weakened. And just the threat in 2015 of ousting John Boehner led to his abrupt resignation as Speaker. McCarthy plans to fight it, even as he is facing more pressure from the right wing to abandon billions of dollars in aid to Ukraine. He can't do it. It would be a violation of the Hassert rule, which is a long-held rule by Republican majorities that the Speaker cannot bring a bill to the floor if the majority of the majority doesn't support it. All as frustration builds among McCarthy's allies. I just pray for wisdom for, for Matt and clarity on this because I think that would be terrible for, Amer- for America. 
Now, today, Gates accused Kevin McCarthy of cutting a side deal with Joe Biden over funding Ukraine, something the president himself seemed to suggest yesterday. Today, McCarthy denied that was the case. Gates also indicated that he plans to continue to push for a vote to seek McCarthy's offer, uh, ouster, over and over again. And Jake, also, McCarthy, uh, Gates told me that he spoke to one person in particular, former President Donald Trump, but he denied, he didn't, he, just, he decided to, to not tell me exactly what they spoke about. Declined to comment further. Jake. All right, CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. We're about to see another barrier broken in the U.S. Senate. California Governor Gavin Newsom has just appointed LaFonza Butler to fill the seat left vacant by the death of Senator Dianne Feinstein. CNN's Kyung La lays out what this means for the heated Senate race that was already underway. Because our story is the story of how when women win, we all win. Seated next to her young daughter and wife, California's future senator, LaFonza Butler, speaking then as the head of EMILY's List. Young women, older women, all women. This is where our power lies. Butler, who has roots in California's most powerful unions, moves from the advocacy world to the U.S. Senate as California's Governor Gavin Newsom appoints his longtime Democratic ally to fill the late Dianne Feinstein seat. Our bodies belong to us. Our freedoms are not up for debate. In appointing Butler to the Senate, Newsom fulfills a promise to select a black woman. Since Kamala Harris left in 2021 to serve as vice president, there have been no black women serving in the chamber. Newsom also avoids a political pickle, with three congressional Democrats already running for the Senate seat. Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, and Barbara Lee, who had lobbied publicly to be Newsom's choice. Of course, it would have been uh, great if I, because I did want to fill the vacancy, if in fact that occurred. But listen, we all have to just focus on what we're doing, and I'm running very uh, seriously. Newsom's office says Butler's appointment comes without any strings attached, so she can run or not run for the Senate seat in 2024. Before she's even been sworn in, some Democrats say she should not. I just think it's terribly unfair that she would do so. And the word around here is that whomever he appointed would not run. And to be airdropped into this is simply not fair. And by the way, I don't think many people know her. Butler has four months before California's primary to change that as the sitting senator. Only the third black woman in U.S. history and the first black lesbian to openly serve in the U.S. Senate. I like to think of it as a embarrassment of riches. There are so many talented black women who've never had a shot at being in the Senate. And we hope that behind the scenes, as the dust settles, that we will, as a movement, figure out who to get behind and get a path to victory here in California so that black women are represented in the long term. Now, soon-to-be Senator Butler moved to Maryland in 2021 to lead Emily's List. She registered a vote there in 2022. We reached out to Governor Newsom's office, and he says, uh, his office says, rather, that she has already re-registered to vote in the state of California. Jake, she's a longtime resident of California, tracing about 20 years of residency here. Jake. All right, Kang Long, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Sources have repeatedly told CNN about damning statements Trump made while president. Now a former Trump White House official who heard those remarks firsthand is setting the record straight and confirming them on the record. It is reported reporting you will see exclusively on the lead coming up. Stay with us. 
In our politics lead, House Republicans at war with themselves while Senate Democrats hang on to control in a closely divided chamber after LaFonza Butler was picked to be California's newest senator after the death of Dianne Feinstein. Let's discuss with Republican strategist Doug High and former Deputy Assistant to President Biden, Rohini Kasoglu. Uh, Rohini, I want you to listen to what Democratic Congressman John Garamendi from California's 8th District told uh, CNN's Casey Hunt earlier today when asked if the new senator, Senator Butler, should run for a full term, because he was pretty emphatic. Take a listen. No, I don't believe she should. There are three exceptional candidates that have been working more than a year. Uh, I just think it's terribly unfair uh, that she would do so. Uh, And the word around here is that whomever he appointed would not run. So there was this idea that Newsom was going to appoint a caretaker, And there are these three candidates, Barbara Lee uh, and Katie Porter and Adam Schiff, who have been running for the seat. Uh, But then it was taken off the table that it doesn't. Senator Butler can run if she wants. Uh, What's your take? Listen, I think it's up to her if she wants to do it. I think the governor rightfully knew that as he was looking at a short list of people that it seemed like the right thing to do was to allow somebody to make that decision on behalf of California if they feel like they're going to be the best person to represent California moving forward. And, and Doug, uh, Butler's appointment allowed Newsom to stay mm-hmm. out of this fight. Um, but it seems uh, that Congresswoman Barbara Lee, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Newsom had said that if he needed to appoint somebody to the seat because Kamala Harris, uh, when she became vice president, he appointed Alex Padilla mm-hmm. to that seat. He said if there was another one, he, a black woman would get that yeah. position. Um, Barbara Lee has made it very clear uh, that she was uh, disappointed Mm -hmm. that she didn't get it. And the Congressional Black Caucus uh, also uh, said that they wanted her, Barbara Lee, to be named to the position, although that was off the table for Newsom because she wants to keep the seat. Um, Lee was critical of Mm -hmm. Newsom, saying the idea that a black woman should be appointed only as a caretaker to simply check a box is insulting to countless black women across this country who have carried the Democratic Party to victory election after election. Um, Tough spot for Newsom in a way. I I think there was a no-win situation for Newsom. Whatever decision he was going to make, somebody was going to be angry. And now with the new senator, she does have sort of a leg up if she decided to announce. She is a brand new face, in in, not in California where she she did used to live, but really fresh on the the political scene in an explosive way. Uh, But what we also know is California is a very big state. And Barbara Lee and others have been running for this seat for a while. They're organizing in all of California's counties. And she may have a leg up because she's, she's the new flavor in the news today. But putting that team together takes time and money, and she doesn't have those. Do you think, I mean, is there any serious way she could mount a serious campaign? I mean, especially given, I mean, these are three, three political operators. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. But Adam Schiff, Katie Porter... Barbara Lee, these are three experienced, tough politicians. I think it'd be pretty tough to get in the race. Well, they're all, there's no question they're all fantastic representatives. But at the end of the day, she would have to decide to make her case to California voters. She spent her career, as Governor Newsom has said, she spent her career for almost two decades as a labor leader. So that's how most people know her in California, fighting for people's wages, fighting for workers to have better working conditions. So she has to take the case if she chooses to do it. And she has to work with, you know, that whole career that she's had and what she would run on if she decides to do it. And she'd have to do that now. Yeah. 
Uh, let's turn to the clash between uh, Kevin McCarthy and Matt Gates because it's, it's out there and it's ugly. Uh, Gates is still threatening a move to oust the Speaker. Yesterday I spoke with both Gates and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, on how uh, either Gates or McCarthy could get to 218 votes either to, to keep his speakership or to vacate the speakership. And if either, uh, if Gates would be willing to work with Democrats uh, to get their help, uh, or if uh, Ocasio-Cortez would be willing to negotiate to, to have her vote, you know, be not for sale, but, you know, it's a bargaining chip. I mean, look, it's not unheard of in Congress. Take a listen. I will make no deal with Democrats and concede no terms to them. I actually think Democrats should vote against Speaker McCarthy for free. Unless there's a real conversation between the Republican and Democratic caucuses and Republican and Democratic leadership about what that would mean, but I don't think we give up votes for free. To say that she'd be happy to vote to vacate Kevin McCarthy, not a fan. Uh, How do you see this playing out? So listen, I have been on Capitol Hill for um, almost two decades, and so I've been through many near-government shutdowns, government shutdowns, and what I can tell you is that whenever there is an inter-party fight like this, where it's gotten to the point of even discussions of motions to vacate, um, there's real dysfunction in every minute that co- that is covered about the inter-party fighting. It's Republicans not being able to make the case about how they want to move forward and lead. So what we've been seeing out of the White House is a str- very pre- almost precision-like approach about explaining to people what this means if there was a government shutdown and how they don't have a plan to move forward. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with this fight, but I can tell you that Many people in Congress are sitting there watching, and they know the reason um, as to why Congress's approval ratings are so low. And, and Doug, when asked by CNN's Manu Raju today if he was prepared to send the Republican-controlled Congress into chaos and paralysis, he didn't back down. Take a listen. You talk, you talk about chaos as if it's me forcing a few votes and filing a few motions. Real chaos is when the American people have to go through the austerity that is coming if we continue to have $2 trillion annual deficits. You don't know chaos until you've seen where this Congress and this uniparty is bringing us. So this is what I told him yesterday. I mean, look, he's right. The debt and the deficit, it's a real problem. I mean, the interest we pay on our debt is money that we could be spending on education, healthcare, et cetera. But is what he's doing getting us any closer to solving the problem? No, this isn't replacing, say, George Santos or Bob Menendez. This is a constitutional role. It means that the House immediately plunges in chaos, and it means that the edible arrangements uh, gift package that Vladimir Putin is sending Matt Gates will get bigger and bigger with every move that he makes. All right. Thank you so much to both of you. Day one of Trump's civil fraud case has just wrapped up. Live images of his motorcade there heading back to Trump Tower an update from the courthouse in just a moment. Stay with us. In our world lead today, today marks five years, five years since Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi was brutally murdered and dismembered at the direction of the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, according to U.S. intelligence agencies. In 2021, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence released its declassified report that found In black and white, quote, Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, approved an operation in Istanbul, Turkey, to capture or kill Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Despite that, Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, has denied direct responsibility. 
Khashoggi was Saudi-born, but a long-term resident of the United States and a fierce critic of the oppressive Saudi regime, which is presumably why he was killed for his words, for his ideas. On October 2nd, 2018, Khashoggi went to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to get paperwork that would have allowed him to marry his fiancée, Hadija Gengiz. He was never seen in public again. In the days and weeks that followed, brutal details of his killing came to light, including his dismembering with a bone saw inflicted by Saudi agents sent by MBS, as was the premeditated plan to murder Khashoggi. What did not follow, however, was any serious effort to hold MBS directly accountable. In fact, MBS has only consolidated power since then. So how does a world leader get away with ordering the murder of a renowned Washington Post journalist and U.S. resident? How does that happen? Well, a month after his murder, the U.S. sanctioned 17 Saudi government officials. But not him, not MBS, not the crown prince. A few days later, then-President Donald Trump weighed in, and he sowed some seeds of doubt, saying maybe MBS knew about it, maybe he didn't. A year after Khashoggi's killing, then-candidate Biden promised to make Saudi Arabia a pariah nation. And when Biden took office in 2021, he ordered the release of that intelligence report, making it clear that MBS ordered the hit. Following that report, 76 Saudis were banned from getting U.S. visas But MBS was not one of them. Some Saudis were also sanctioned. But again, you guessed it, MBS was not sanctioned. When asked why, Biden's Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, said this. So what we've done by the actions that we've taken uh, is really not to rupture the relationship, but to recalibrate it, to be more in line with our interests uh, and our values. And uh, I think that uh, we have to uh, understand as well that this is, this is bigger than any one uh, person. Hmm. In 2022, MBS got another pass. The Biden administration determined that he would be immune from a case brought against him by Khashoggi's fiance. Why, you might ask? Well, Biden's Justice Department argued, while calling Khashoggi's murder, quote, heinous, that MBS recently made the Saudi prime minister, was therefore, as a result, qualified for immunity because he was the foreign head of a government, which is likely exactly how MBS planned it, according to one legal scholar. Either way, the word pariah for the Biden administration sure does not mean what it meant when I studied for my SATs. Here's Biden fist bumping MBS in 2022. Here's Biden two days before the 9-11 anniversary at the G20 summit just last month. All smiles. Oh, White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby deflected on the lead just two weeks ago. Take a listen. No, look, the crown prince put his hand out. The president shook it. He shook a lot of hands there at the G20. So, as I asked you before, how does a world leader get away with ordering the murder of a renowned Washington Post journalist and U.S. resident? Khashoggi's editor at the Washington Post, Karen Atia, she remembers attending Time Magazine's party after her late colleague was named its 2018 Person of the Year. She writes, quote, After a few minutes, the image of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman appeared. His April 2018 cover was headlined, Charm Offensive. Should the world buy what the Crown Prince is selling? 
I realized then that the party was a celebration of all that Time Magazine had done that year. I had forgotten that MBS was one of Time's 100 most influential people in the world in 2018. So a murder victim and his alleged killer were shown on the same level, in the same way. Both of them party props. It was an ominous expression of modern journalism's obsession with both sidesism, its constant impulse to give oppressors as much care and elevation as those they oppress, unquote. And while we're on that subject, last week, MBS himself appeared on a different channel here in the U.S., where the host asked about the accusation of murder and then seemed to rush to defend MBS. The host saying, I've heard you address this several times, saying you didn't order the murder, saying it was horrible and a mistake, and that as a leader, you take responsibility as a leader of the country, unquote. I'm quoting the interviewer here. The interviewer. Remember, also, the Saudis started Live Golf and hired all these American golfers to sports wash their human rights abuses and their role in 9-11 and their murder of Jamal Khashoggi. All points that were driven home with great passion by the PGA Tour until the PGA Tour made a deal with Live Golf in June. And suddenly those issues didn't matter so much. So how did Saudi's crown prince and now prime minister get away with murder? I'll tell you how. Right in front of our eyes and with a lot of help. Straight ahead, exclusive new CNN reporting. One of the top officials in Donald Trump's White House shares shocking details only on the lead, what that official confirms about Trump's spoken views about service members who were wounded or killed in the line of duty. Do not want to miss this. Stay with us. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, we just heard from Donald Trump as day one of his civil fraud case wrapped up. The former president just arrived back at Trump Tower, although it's not clear whether he plans to attend when court resumes tomorrow morning. This is a case that could have been in the hands of a jury. Instead, a single judge who already found Trump liable for fraud will now decide how much he must pay up, and it could be a quarter of a billion dollars plus pushed out as a Texas state trooper over his health problems, developed while serving his country in Iraq, health problems that he developed because of burn pits. This is a case we have followed here on The Lead for years. Today, we're going to bring you some good news about a tragic case. And leading this hour, a brand new warning about Donald Trump's true character behind the scenes, this time from his longest serving White House chief of staff, John Kelly, on the record, only here on The Lead, confirming insults about veterans and wounded and killed service members that the former president made behind closed doors when Trump thought no one was watching, when Trump thought no one cared. John Kelly setting the record straight about Trump's most stinging words about war heroes and military service members. 
Our coverage starts with this exclusive reporting, with former Chief of Staff John Kelly offering his strongest rebuke yet of Donald Trump. Referring to Trump's recent comments about retired Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley, Kelly called Trump, quote, a person who cavalierly suggests that a selfless warrior who has served his country for 40 years in peacetime and war should lose his life for treason in expectation that someone will take action, unquote. Kelly also called his former boss, quote, a person who admires autocrats and murderous dictators, unquote. And there's more. Hi, Donald John Trump. No other president has had so many former top aides making such harsh public assessments. Most recently, Cassidy Hutchinson. I think that Donald Trump is the most grave threat that we will face to our democracy in our lifetime and potentially in American history. She joins a growing chorus. I think he's unfit for office. He will always put his own interests and gratifying his own ego ahead of everything else. Thank you. And today, Trump's longest serving former chief of staff, John Kelly, is chiming in with his harshest criticism yet. In an exclusive statement to CNN, Kelly says about Trump, what can I add that has not already been said? Calling President Trump, quote, a person that has no idea what America stands for and has no idea what America is all about. For the first time ever, Kelly sets the record straight with on-the-record confirmation of a number of damning details about Donald Trump from background sources, including from a 2020 Atlantic story reported with unnamed sources by editor-in-chief Jeffrey Goldberg, including the stunning detail that Trump turned to Kelly on Memorial Day at Arlington National Cemetery in 2017 and asked, I don't get it. What was in it for them? This is Kelly confirming on the record stories of Trump insulting Senator John McCain and former President George H.W. Bush because in Vietnam and in World War II, respectively, the former aviators were shot down. Kelly describes Trump as, quote, a person that thinks those who defend their country in uniform or are shot down or seriously wounded in combat or spend years being tortured as POWs are all, quote, suckers because, quote, there is nothing in it for them. A person that did not want to be seen in the presence of military amputees because, quote, it doesn't look good for me. A person that demonstrated open contempt for a Gold Star family, for all Gold Star families, on TV during the 2016 campaign. And rants that our most precious heroes who gave their lives in America's defense are, quote, losers and wouldn't visit their graves in France. Kelly confirming on the record a story reported in the book The Divider, where Trump tells Kelly he wants a military parade, like one he saw for Bastille Day in France, except he does not want any wounded veterans. Kelly confirming that Trump in 2018 in France refused to visit graves of Americans killed in World War I. To CNN, Kelly calls Trump a hypocrite, saying he is, quote, not truthful regarding his position on the protection of unborn life, on women, on minorities, on evangelical Christians, on Jews, on working men and women. And he concludes Trump is, quote, a person that has nothing but contempt for our democratic institutions, our Constitution, and the rule of law. He concludes, there is nothing more that can be said. God help us. He's doing a great job. 
as chief of staff. A stunning repudiation by a man who worked side by side with Trump longer than any other of Trump's many chiefs of staff. Kelly also criticized Trump for saying that former Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley should be executed. In a departure speech on Friday, Milley responded. We don't take an oath to a king or a queen or to a tyrant or a dictator. And we don't take an oath to a wannabe dictator. Some of the people who know Donald Trump the best now warning of the threat they think he poses if elected in November 2024. Now, CNN reached out to the Trump campaign Monday afternoon, telling officials at the campaign that a former administration official had confirmed on the record a number of the details about the 2020 Atlantic Magazine story. We did not name John Kelly, but we wanted to seek comment about the substance of that story. The Trump campaign responded with a statement insulting the character and credibility of retired Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley, who had nothing to do with the story. Uh, The Trump campaign also issued a statement insulting me, uh, saying I should, quote, stop peddling fake news from shady sources, unquote, which would be relevant, except the news is quite real and the source is quite impeccable. I'd like to bring in someone who worked alongside John Kelly, former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton. Uh, John, thanks for uh, joining us. Uh, So for the first time, John Kelly, who's been very reluctant to do this on the record, uh, but here he is confirming uh, several stories Uh, that really offended him greatly, um, especially ones that had to do with his attitude towards veterans, uh, wounded soldiers, killed soldiers, Trump at Arlington Cemetery in 2017, standing among the graves of American soldiers who died in Afghanistan and Iraq and saying, I don't get it, what was in it for them? Trump calling Americans who died in World War I losers, not refusing to visit the cemeteries of World War I uh, soldiers. Uh, Trump uh, not wanting wounded veterans in a military parade because it would, quote, not be a good look for him. Did you hear any of these comments um, or anything like it? And and do you have any reason to doubt John Kelly, uh, knowing him as you do? Well, first, I have no reason whatever uh, to doubt what John said. Uh, I think he was saying exactly uh, what he heard from Trump. Some of those things he had told me, some, some occurred before uh, I arrived at the White House. Uh, the the question of uh, the, the the Veterans Day, uh, the Armistice Day celebration in France, uh, I, I I did not hear those comments there. I think I'm sure John heard them when when I was out of the room uh, doing something else. I don't have any doubt uh, that what John Kelly said was true. None whatever. Kelly's comments also square with the reporting from the Atlantic, a more recent story by Jeff Goldberg, a profile of General Milley. Uh, that Trump didn't react well to seeing a severely wounded uh, army captain who was singing um, God Bless America at an event. In this more recent story by Goldberg, uh, the profile of Milley, Trump said to Milley, why do you bring people like that here? No one wants to see that, the wounded, um, unquote. I I have to say on a personal level, as somebody who who tries to do a lot of work to help our wounded soldiers, I don't even understand this point of view. These are our bravest of the brave. And this man was commander in chief and wants to be commander in chief again. And he doesn't want to see wounded soldiers. Explain that to me if you can. Well, I I can tell you what John Kelly once told me about the visit to Walter Reed that occurred uh, before I arrived when uh, most people, when they see service members who have been grievously wounded, are affected by it or 
uh, stunned by the devotion to duty, the patriotism, the dedication of, of those who have, have sacrificed so much and, and endured such uh, brutal wounds. Trump, he said, tried to stay away from it. And, and John Kelly interpreted it, uh, I think, correctly as cowardice on Trump's part, a fear that something like that could have happened to him, uh, could happen to him, and he just didn't want to face it. Uh, I'm not a shrink. I don't make shrink diagnoses. But I think the cowardism uh, analysis is correct. Trump's obviously the leading candidate for the Republican presidential nomination. He's neck and neck with President Biden in the general election, if not slightly ahead. Um, Does it concern you uh, that he could once again serve as commander in chief and the head of the armed forces? Well, it appalls me that he could be elected president again. Uh, I I don't have any sympathy for for his potential opponents on the Democratic side. I didn't vote for Biden or Trump in 2020. Uh, I'd like to see a conservative Republican on the ticket. Donald Trump is not a conservative Republican. Uh, And I think that, uh, as I've said repeatedly on any number of occasions, he did damage in his first term, has largely been repaired, but that if he were elected to a second term, this time he might damage that would be irreparable. This is a very dangerous uh, period we're about to enter into here. And John Kelly also says that Trump is, quote, a person that has no idea what America stands for and has no idea what America is all about, a person who cavalierly suggests that a selfless warrior who has served his country for 40 years in peacetime and war, this is a reference to General Milley, should lose his life for treason, an expectation that someone will take action, a person who admires autocrats and murderous dictators, a person that has nothing but contempt for our democratic institutions, our constitution, and the rule of law. I know you agree with some of that because it was in your book, The, the Room Where It Happened. Um, the idea, it was interesting, though, that Kelly put in there that he thinks Trump accusing Milley of treason was done in order to encourage someone to act on that. Well, it's, look, it's entirely possible. Trump, Trump uh, uses the word treason quite a bit. He called me uh, a traitor, uh, others in his administration. Mike Pompeo called me a traitor for writing a book. Uh, that, that's the way they do things. Uh, and it's entirely possible that's what Trump wants to see. I think the central point uh, of what John Kelly said in that particular quotation goes to really the essence of Donald Trump. The only thing he cares about is Donald Trump. Everything else is instrumental. Uh, the idea that he has a philosophy that we have really much of an idea at all what he will do in a second term, freed from any uh, electoral guardrails. Remember, he can't run for a third term. So the political constraints that he faced in his first term will be largely non-existent. Uh, simply enhance the danger of what may happen in uh, a second term. And there are a lot of other Republicans who can actually be reasonable presidents of the United States. Uh, the party has to find a way to find that person and nominate him or her. Former U.S. National Security Advisor and U.N. Ambassador John Bolton, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Again, these are confirmed comments made to set the record straight by uh, John Kelly talking about the former commander-in-chief. I want to get reaction uh, by someone who served in uniform. That's next. And we're back with more of our exclusive reporting. Former White House Chief of Staff to Donald Trump, John Kelly, confirming and adding new context to several stories regarding Trump's thoughts and attitude toward wounded veterans and killed veterans. Kelly calling Trump a person, quote, who thinks those who defend their country in uniform or who are shot down or seriously wounded in combat 
or spend years being tortured as POWs are all suckers because, quote, there's nothing in it for them who did not want to be seen in the presence of military amputees because, quote, it doesn't look good for me, who demonstrated open contempt for all Gold Star families and rants that our most precious heroes who gave their lives in America's defense are losers and wouldn't visit their graves in France. Joining me now is retired Air Force uh, Colonel uh, Cedric uh, Layton. Uh, so, so, Colonel, a lot of these stories were uh, reported in The Atlantic uh, magazine by Jeffrey Goldberg and in the book The Divider uh, by Susan Glasser and Peter Baker, but they were on background. Now we have Trump's longest-serving White House Chief of Staff confirming them on the record, his name attached to them, and expressing abject disgust with Donald Trump for those attitudes. Uh, you're a veteran. Uh, what's your response? Well, uh, you know, every time you hear something like this, Jake, you're amazed uh, that somebody like that could have actually been the commander in chief. Uh, And it doesn't matter about party affiliation or anything like that or ideology even. But what does matter is taking care of the troops. One of the key things that's instilled in commanders is that they must take care of their troops. And that should extend from the lowest level commander, like a platoon level command, all the way up to the commander in chief. Uh, And when that isn't done, Uh, That really affects morale. It affects the ability of the force to move forward. Uh, It affects everything that uh, you can imagine for the military, including readiness. I just don't even understand it because, I mean, we were just talking about this with John Bolton, but when I see a wounded veteran, I think, what a hero. You know, when you you sign up or when you're drafted Mm -hmm. uh, for older generations, you know, you are going, that is an act of heroism unto itself when you sign up or when you, you know, go into Vietnam or you go to Iraq or, or Afghanistan. You are putting yourself in, in harm's way, um, yeah. knowing you could lose your life or a limb or your eyesight. And when you see somebody, I mean, we have wounded veterans on the show all the time. We just had one on uh, a week ago today. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- when you see somebody like that, you think, God, his life is forever changed or her life is forever changed. And how heroic and, you know, I don't know if I would have the courage or strength to do that. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think the key thing is that these people, all of us who have served, you know, we we look inside ourselves and we look to something greater. We look for something that we can do to protect the nation and other people around the world. So it's not just for America. It's really for other people as well. Uh, But when somebody is wounded, you take care of them. Uh, You know, it's like the motto that you have in front of the Veterans Administration, which basically is... uh, to take care of the widow, the orphan, and the wounded veteran because they are the ones who have served, who have borne the brunt of not only their injuries, but also of the sacrifice that they had to make in order uh, to to serve in this way. And they happen to, in that sense, get unlucky by being wounded. Uh, they could have, you know, there could have been other things that have happened, but those who have uh, been wounded, those who have died, uh, those who have uh, even those hidden injuries like post-traumatic stress and other injuries like TBI. Uh, Those are the kinds of things that everybody should be looking to help protect. Uh, You and I both have done things for veterans. Uh, We try very hard to look at them. I think one of the proudest things that I've ever been able to do is help a wounded veteran get promoted, stay in the Air Force, and get promoted in spite of his wounds. Uh, That is something that uh, I will always think about very proudly just because I was able to help that one person in that particular case. And even little things with other wounded veterans It becomes really important to do that, and it becomes important that anybody who uh, aspires to be the commander-in-chief, that that person 
really take into account what it means to send people into battle, to send people into harm's way. You think about what uh, Franklin Roosevelt thought about or what Abraham Lincoln well, Cedric, thought about. Cedric, this guy, I mean, John Kelly says that mm-hmm. Donald Trump, when he was in France for the centennial mm-hmm. anniversary of the end of World War I mm-hmm. in, in 2018, wouldn't even go to two different graves of American soldiers who helped end the war in World, in World War I, who helped end that war under the great General Black Jack Pershing, yeah. um, because he thought they were suckers and losers. Well, I, I mean, I don't even understand that. They were heroes. They were absolute heroes, and there's no question about it. And I think everybody who you know, thinks that uh, it was acceptable to behave in that way, they should spend a time at a place like the Marine Corps Museum, because that place actually shows what it was, what it was like during World War I. And places a lot of them like died that, of, of illness. Absolutely. Illness, wounds. Uh, other factors, and they saved Europe at that time. And they same, the veterans in World War II did the same thing as well. They, they absolutely them. saved Europe, 100%. Trump loves to uh, quote an apocryphal story about Black Jack Pershing having to do with this nonsense about Muslims in the Philippines. That's not a true story. This is the actual heroism of Pershing. He doesn't want to talk about that. Anyway, Cedric, I digress. Thank you so much. Retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Clayton, thanks so much. Let's turn to CNN Chief Correspondent and Anchor of the Source, Caitlin Collins. Caitlin, Um, Are you surprised at all to see John Kelly setting the record straight, going on the record, saying he heard these stories, he heard this, this happened, and going on to offer this sharp rebuke, uh, uh, the sharpest one yet of Donald Trump? No, I'm not surprised. I think General Kelly has been very clear in his statements, reflecting on his time working for Trump, serving as his chief of staff, a role that I should note he took in a very different way than other chiefs of staff that Trump had, whether it was Reince Priebus, uh, Mick Mulvaney, Mark Meadows. John Kelly was someone who monitored the call logs, really tried to restrict access to the Oval Office, really tried to constrain Trump in a way that we did not see other senior aides do to that degree. And he's been very blunt, I think, about his assessment of Trump, saying that he doesn't, that he lacks moral character, that he lacks judgment. Really, I mean, blunt comments. I know in Trump world, everything is kind of turned upside down. But to hear a former chief of staff say that about the president they served under is quite remarkable. But when I was looking what he what he told you, Jake, about, you know, Trump's past comments about gold star families, all of this, a lot of that was before John Kelly went to serve as the chief of staff in the Trump West Wing. And I think it reflects how at that time period, there were still officials who thought that they could that they could come in, that they could change Trump, that they could somehow work to make him a better president or that he would feel differently once he was in the Oval Office. And very clearly from John Kelly's assessment, that was not the case. Trump's still by far the leading Republican for the nomination by more than 30 points. So far, legal indictments, criticism from other Republicans, former members of his administration, Criticism from Cassidy Hutchinson, criticism from John Bolton, criticism from general after general, administration official after administration official have yet to damage him or even bring him down in the polls. Uh, Might John Kelly going on the record confirming that he had these insults for wounded veterans, for uh, soldiers, Marines killed in the line of duty, might that have an effect? Or is, is there just nothing that will have an impact whatsoever? I think typically it would have an impact. And typically a judge in a pretrial motion saying that you have committed fraud and you inflated your riches would also hurt a leading Republican candidate. And we just don't see that happen with Trump. And I think it's something that mystifies Republicans. 
And clearly none of that has stopped him or halted him. He has only continued to be boosted as he has run and faced all these issues and been in courtrooms or had comments like the ones that John Kelly revealed to you, Jake. And one other thing I would note is about the wounded veteran who sang God Bless America at that welcome ceremony for Mark Milley when he became the Joint Chiefs chairman. At his farewell ceremony on Friday at the Pen- or at the base in Washington, that same wounded veteran came out and sang God Bless America again. Of course, before Miller referred to Trump as a wannabe dictator, I think very clearly an intentional move on his part. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. You can catch Caitlin on The Source at 9 p.m. only here on CNN. And as John Kelly gives this warning, Donald Trump himself today seemed to use his civil fraud case as a campaign stop his comments just moments ago on this trial that puts his entire business operation in New York at risk. Stay with us. In our Law and Justice lead just moments ago, Donald Trump arrived back at Trump Tower after attending day one, day one of his civil fraud trial, a trial that could mean the end of his business operations in New York. It could cost him a quarter of a billion dollars. You heard that right, a quarter of a billion dollars. Let's bring in CNN's Bryn Gingras. Bryn, so Donald Trump spoke as he left the courthouse. Uh, What did he have to say? Yeah, Jake, and he said in his comments, many of which he made today, but in these last comments, he said uh, that the last five minutes of court today were outstanding. Well, let me explain to you why. Essentially, the person who was on the stand and who will continue on the stand tomorrow is Donald Bender. That is the former accountant for Trump and Trump Org. And the state's attorneys spent several hours questioning Bender on financial documents that relate to alleged crimes from 2011. Now, that is outside the statute of limitations. The court has already decided the crimes alleged have to be from 2014 and on. And so the fact that this was continued on for three hours, the judge said, was he's hoping the state's attorneys are going to connect the dots between what they're alleging prior to 2014 to what happened and is relevant to this particular trial. And he said in that I trust that you can relate the 2011 documents to something that happened later or else this has been a waste of time. So Trump, very happy to hear that from the judge, of course, particularly because he fought in appeals court and won when the statute of limitations would be established. So that is why he was a bit more jovial in his last comments, Jake. But he did take many times before that to disparage the judge in those comments in the hallway. And also, of course, Letitia James, the New York attorney general, who's brought this civil uh, trial against him. And being in court today seemed to fit into Trump's uh campaign strategy, which is, as always, to portray himself as as a victim. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, he, like I said, came out several times. Anytime there really was a break in court to make comments, to use the the typical taglines we've heard from him, that this is a witch hunt. His attorneys even making that case uh, in the courtroom during opening statements as well, which the judge shot down. It's unclear, Jake, at this point, if he is going to return to court tomorrow and continue this. Uh, He's saying that, you know what, this is taking him away from his campaign. But you we all know very well that he is getting his time in front of the camera, which is important to his campaign. So we'll be on the lookout to see what he decides for day two of this trial. Bryn Grass, thanks so much. Really appreciate Sorry. it. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, okay. All bluster but no bite. That's what some are asking tonight about Republican Congressman Matt Gates and his threats to oust House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. I'm going to talk with a Republican uh, member of Congress uh, next. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the infighting between House Republicans is getting even uglier. Today, Florida Republican Congressman Matt Gates took to the House floor. He repeated his threat 
to try to oust Kevin McCarthy from the speakership after McCarthy made that deal with Democrats last Saturday to avoid the government shutdown. It is going to be difficult for my Republican friends to keep calling President Biden feeble while he continues to take Speaker McCarthy's lunch money in every negotiation. So for all the crocodile tears about what may happen later this week about a motion to vacate, working with the Democrats is a yellow brick road that has been paved by Speaker McCarthy. Matt Gates, never metaphor he didn't like. Uh, joining us now, New York Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of New York. Uh, Congressman, good to see you. What are you hearing from your Republican colleagues today? You've, you've called Gates's reasoning a diatribe of delusional thinking. You have called him a charlatan. Obviously, your respect for Matt Gates knows bounds. Uh, what are you hearing from your colleagues? Well, I think there's a broad consensus uh, within the conference uh, that what he is doing is destructive, uh, that it undermines the work that we were elected to do. Uh, the American people elected a House Republican majority to govern uh, and to serve as a check and balance on the Biden agenda. There is no disagreement within the conference about the need to cut spending, uh, about the need to change course uh, when it comes to policy. Uh, and there's no disagreement about the need to do single subject appropriations bills. And in fact, we have been doing that work. Uh, House Republicans have passed four of the 12 bills, which account for roughly 70 percent of discretionary spending. Senate Democrats have passed exactly zero. So we are doing the work. This will be a major distraction from that work. Uh, obviously, we extended uh, government funding by 45 days so that we could complete this important work on behalf of the American people and fight for uh, border security. I would remind everybody that the reason that we couldn't do that in this CR was because of Matt Gates and some of my colleagues that voted against the conservative CR that the speaker put forth that would have cut spending by 8% and would have enacted HR2 uh, to help secure our border. You can't negotiate with the Senate and the White House if you don't have a bill passed, which we saw during uh, the debt ceiling negotiations. Because we were able to pass Limit, Save, Grow uh, and get that through the House, Chuck Schumer was sidelined because he couldn't pass anything through the Senate. So, and we were able to negotiate with the president. So what Congressman Gates said to me, I said if you had voted for the bill that uh, Speaker McCarthy put forward on Friday, which was the... the lower spending uh, spending bill. That would have gone to the Senate. The Senate would have rejected it, but passed their own bill. And then there would have been a conference committee and Republicans would have been in a stronger position. There would have been less spending and whatever came out of that committee. And then that would have gone to Biden, et cetera. He said, that's not what it would have happened. There hasn't been a conference committee on a continuing resolution since the 90s. The Senate would have just jammed the House with a bill and then it, that would have gone to Biden Blah, blah, blah. Uh, was he right? <laughs> that's, that's almost what happened because of his irrational behavior. Uh, we were able to pass a clean CR with uh, disaster relief, uh, and we will work on the issue of Ukraine uh, and border security down the road uh, precisely because he would not support a CR that had spending cuts and border security. Whether there was a conference committee or not, the reality is the speaker would have been in a position to negotiate with Senator Schumer, with the White House, uh, over a short-term spending gap measure. Because Matt undermined that process, uh, there was only one choice, 
which was to keep the American government open and funded so as not to harm the American people or worsen a already fragile economy uh, because Bidenomics has failed so miserably. So on the that House, is his fault, not the Speaker's. So on the House floor today, Gates accused Speaker McCarthy, and, and also on my show uh, yesterday, uh, Gates accused Speaker McCarthy of making a secret deal with President Biden on this aid for Ukraine. Uh, McCarthy denies that, although uh, President Biden did say there was some sort of uh, deal when it comes to Ukraine. I'm not really sure what the president's talking about, but but there is uh, the bigger issue here is that there is no money for Ukraine in the spending bill that passed Saturday. I believe that you support further aid for Ukraine. Uh, What's going to happen? What should Congress do? Well, listen, I was not willing to shut down the American government over foreign aid. Uh, To me, that would be unacceptable. I do support uh, the spending uh, in Ukraine to support their efforts and to beat back Russian aggression. Uh, Russia is in an unholy alliance with China, North Korea, and Iran, uh, and it's a threat to the United States economy uh, and our national security. So we need to uh, combat that malign influence of Russia. But that is going to have to be negotiated. There's no secret deal. There's no side deal. It's a reality. The president and the Senate are pushing for uh, more funding in Ukraine. Uh, A majority of members in the House support funding in Ukraine. Uh, So it's a reality that we have to deal with. The question is, uh, will we get border security for the American people? Will we get spending cuts on behalf of the American people uh, to right-size uh, a bloated and out-of-control federal government. That is what is going on here. So for Matt to say, oh, this is some secret deal, uh, wake up, dude. Uh, I, I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and it's just him trying to latch on to something else to create chaos uh, and try to use as a vehicle uh, to remove the speaker. I would, I would note, Matt Gates refers to the speaker breaking promises, the speaker breaking the rules. The only person who has broken the Republican conference rules is Matt Gates. He voted against uh, the majority of the majority when it came to our choice for speaker. He voted to take down rules on the House floor. And now, despite the fact that our conference rules require a majority of the majority to bring a motion to vacate, he's threatening to do it himself. Uh, so Matt has been a singular destructive force within the conference, uh, and the American people should understand uh, that what he is doing is not conservative. Uh, it is not conservative republicanism. Uh, mm-hmm. He is a charlatan, and I stand by that. Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of the Empire State, New York. Good to see you, sir. Thanks so much. Coming up next, a legal victory worth millions for a person you know. If you watch the lead, he's going to join us live. That's next. Now for our buried lead, that's what we call stories we think are not getting enough attention. Last Friday, this is good news, I promise. Last Friday, a Texas jury awarded nearly $2.5 million, $2.5 million to a former Texas state trooper who had essentially been forced out of his job because of health problems he had developed after being exposed to burn pits in Iraq, where he was serving his country. A little background, burn pits were used by the U.S. military in Iraq and Afghanistan to destroy trash and munitions and hazardous chemicals and even human and medical waste. More than three million veterans may have been exposed to the toxic fumes from the fires, according to the VA. My next guests are among those affected. Leroy Torres is a former Texas state trooper and army reservist. He returned from his year-long deployment to Iraq with these health issues, and that interfered with his daily work as a Texas state trooper. Rather than 
accommodating him because of his service, the Texas Department of Public Safety abruptly fired him and he sued. And his case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court before he was even able to sue and take them to trial. Torres and his wife, Rosie, also co-founded Burn Pits 360. That's an organization we've covered a lot, uh, dedicated to helping burn pit victims. And Leroy and Rosie join us now. You know them. You've seen them on the show before. First of all, congratulations, Rosie and Leroy. I was saying to you during the commercial break, I can't believe the system worked. We've been following this all for years. Burn Pits 360, you got all that worked out. And I mean, there's still more to do, but people are getting money and help and the Supreme Court ruled the right way, and you got your $2.5 million, and what's your reaction? Leroy, start, you start. Uh, well, Jake, thanks for having us this afternoon. And you know what? After almost seven years that uh, you know, justice finally uh, prevailed from you know, just starting our, 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 our battle, you know, county court and going up to the legal system and to the U.S. Supreme Court, and then finally getting that opportunity to bring our, our, our battle back to Texas uh, finally, uh, you know, September 29th, I, after over this decade uh, of this injustice that was served, that finally I have uh, that peace. It's amazing. It's amazing. Rosie, I mean, congratulations. Jake, thank you. I mean, as you know, we've said it before, um, it, we couldn't have done it without Leroy's amazing legal team. But this is primarily for, you know, this is a result of an injustice that happened to Leroy. Uh, you know, I, I, I stood by him to advocate for him and many veterans just like Leroy. Um, this has never been just about Leroy, but about the injustice of life after war and uh, and making sure that, you know, states don't just get to say that they're sovereign uh, because they're the state. So it's overwhelming. We're so grateful. Again, we, we couldn't do it without this amazing team that I know Leroy is going to talk about here in a minute. But we're just grateful to God that, that we're here today at this moment with this decision. Yeah. Let me make it clear. This is a wonderful day and a wonderful decision. But those heartless bastards that made this long, long struggle necessary should never sleep soundly again for the rest of their lives. A hundred percent. You know, you're not saying that, but I'm saying that. Leroy Stars and Stripes quotes you as saying, as citizen soldiers, we deserve to keep our professions when we return from serving our nation. We should not have to bear the burden alone due to illnesses or injuries caused by an instrumentality of war, unquote. Elaborate on that for us, if you would. You know, Jake, it's like we, you know, we, uh, you know, we fulfill that oath when we go overseas and just to, I mean, the beginning of serving our country, but, you know, uh, when we get back, that we, we expect that same uh, loyalty for us if we come back injured or over an illness. And we, you know, we have that expectation that we come back as, as uh, citizen soldiers, as reservists, uh, and to come back to, to Texas and that it was questionable because of my permanent lung injury, that that cannot be accommodated. And that's, that was devastating because this was my childhood dream. And, and to know that we had to take our battle all the way to the highest court in the land, it's just, this should not have happened. You know, I was sitting there last week reflecting, you know, in, in the courtroom, like, I shouldn't even have to be here. I said, all, all I did was I, I, I served my nation. And the argument was that it wasn't that, that uh, the, the argument wasn't it was military discrimination, but it was the accommodation that was of the USERA that was, was violated. And Rosie, do you think this victory is going to help other burn pit victims? 
Absolutely. I mean, Jake, we hear time and time again every day since we established the organization 13 years ago that men and women are coming back with these invisible wounds of war and they're facing, you know, again, not only the injustice of not being, you know, they're being served by denial. And so we, we took that all the way to Congress for the PACT Act. But um, again, they're facing the injustice of job loss and, and, and them not accommodating and fulfilling the intent of the law. So yes, it, it's going to set legal precedents at a national level and, and here in the state of Texas. All right. You guys are the best. God bless. Thanks so much for coming on. We really uh, appreciate thank, it. Leroy and Rosie Torres. Yeah, we can say thank you to Andrew Tutt from Arno and Porter, Brian Lawler, Steve Chapman. Thank you. Yes, thank you to those guys, of course, but mostly thank you to you two. Really appreciate it. Coming up, why you'll want to make sure your cell phone is working properly on Wednesday afternoon. That's ahead. What's up? You're probably going to hear a screeching alert from your cell phone on Wednesday afternoon, but do not panic. Federal government says it plans to test its emergency alert system at 2.20 p.m. Eastern. That's 11.20 a.m. Pacific. The noise will come with a message that reads, quote, this is a test of the National Wireless Emergency Alert System. No action is needed. So just relax, okay? It's going to be okay. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.